I work out because I love it. And I love beauty. It's like, it's one of my things um, that lots of people <laughs> have their thing. Like, I like getting my nails done. I like to stay in shape. I love style. I love fashion. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna get my hair done. I'm gonna do all the bougie shit. You know what I mean? Because I just enjoy it. It's not because I don't think I'm lovable without it. It's because I think it's fun. So I think that's the other part too, is how do you play with that? You know, like if I believed, oh my God, I have to look like this forever for somebody to love me, I'd be a mess. Welcome to the Prime Life Project Podcast, a place to help you unlock your full potential, both mentally and physically, to become the best version of you. Welcome back to an episode of the Prime Life Project Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel James. And today I've got, once again, another fantastic guest for you. Today I have Joe Weatherford. Joe, how are we? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. Now, honestly, really, really looking forward to this. Like, your story is just fantastic. Like, there's so much we can sort of go on. And, and the sort of stuff and the work that you're doing now to help people is absolutely awesome. However, I always like to go back to the start. So can we just sort of take my audience back to what life was like for you growing up? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I grew up, both my parents were airline pilots, um, pretty badass. My mom was the first Hispanic commercial female airline pilot. This was back when women were not pilots. Um, so it's pretty incredible she did that. So that's how they met. Um, they had me and a bunch of pilots all moved to this tiny town called Prescott, Arizona that now like everyone knows of, of. But when I was there, it was super small. So I grew up in this very small community. And then um, my dad was gone all the time. My mom became an alcoholic and I was just like super trapped in this tiny town. Um, everybody kind of knew there was some things going on with my family. Um, I was molested when I was four. I mean, there was just like, you know, I mean, you just throw like all the shit at the wall, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, like it all happened. Where I got into trouble is at age 11, I started drinking. So by 12, I was a full-blown alcoholic. I remember the first time I drank, it was Bud Light, which is just like, <laughs> like literally, I can't even believe it. I drank, I mean, like eight or nine of them puked all day and then couldn't wait to do it again. I mean, I was one of those. I was like, that was the best thing ever. So it was weird because my life, my whole life, I was really high functioning. Like they were prepping me for the Olympic softball team. I was working with um, Becky Limke, the Olympic pitcher and Ron Bolden. And I was, I don't know, I was just like the star athlete. Um, but meanwhile, like I'm so sick, I'm dealing Coke. It's bad, you know, but I could always maintain. I was super high functioning and Finally, it got so bad, I just knew like it was either, I did have a suicide attempt, I was gonna kill myself, like something bad. I told my parents I need to go to boarding school. So I left, and even that's a crazy story. They wouldn't send me, so I stole a car and I drove from Arizona to California, I called them from a payphone. I'm 15, mind you. And I said, if you don't send me to boarding school, I'm gonna drive down to Tijuana and you're never gonna see me again. Like I would rather die in Mexico than live with you people. I was that, that level mad. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, it was partially them, partially me, like I have a great relationship. Let me just say that now with my family, my mom got sober before me. Um, my dad and I are super close. So like, I love my family so much. They're amazing. But growing up, it was absolute hell. So they finally sent me to boarding school. I went to this school. It was like people from Japan, Saudi Arabia. Like I got to go to school with all these different people from all over the world. They were also incredibly wealthy. So I had massive amounts of access to drugs, like Sammy Gravano, the dude that ratted out John Gotti had a bunch of, of kids in Paradise Valley. He was in the witness protection program and ran the largest ecstasy international import yeah. and export business. So, you know, we'd all wear the 
big X's, the Armani exchange shirts, go to raves, sell drugs. Like, I mean, it's just, it was crazy. Like my life story is just so weird. I graduated second in my class, full ride scholarships anywhere I wanted. I was 16 years old. My parents moved to Reno and they were like, we are still legally responsible for you. So no way in hell are we leaving you in Arizona by yourself unsupervised. So I moved to Reno with them. I got a job as the buyer for a, a really nice country club. Again, I just always had these like cool opportunities. Um, so I did that. I'm still drinking a lot, um, but I can maintain, you know, like if you've talked to anybody that I was dating or very close with at that time, they would tell you what a horrible alcoholic I was. But to the rest of the world, I was just like this fun party. Girl. When we say alcoholic, how much were you drinking at that time? Um, you know, then I would only drink on the weekends. I wasn't like a daily drinker, but when I went out, I went out. I mean, it was like you're pre-gaming three or four shots. You're out, you know, eight, nine, 10 drinks, like a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I didn't start day drinking and needing to drink like to avoid DTs until later in life. So it was kind of one of those and I used to work on a college campus. I was a professor and I would see it with students a lot. And there's this idea of like, oh, everybody just parties like this and you grow out of it. And truly, a lot of people do, you know, but um, I think that that was my mentality. It was like, oh, I'll eventually just kind of age out of this. And what I've realized now that people don't tell you, whether it's about alcoholism or, you know, mental health stuff or just character defects like we don't just grow out of them they don't just like go away you know they get worse or we heal them so my addiction got really bad i was going to school but then started modeling um and the money was just so good i started traveling with a couple motorcycle companies so i'd be like at sturgis daytona just traveling all over getting paid stupid money to just model on a motorcycle and uh, I just met a lot of really cool people and dropped out of school because why wouldn't I um I had one class left and I was like I'll finish it online yeah right you know as I'm traveling everywhere then I got involved with Playboy and then it just kind of like progressed from there um I never like did porn um but i did shoot like solo stuff girl on girl for a hustler it was a very small time of my life mm -hmm. and it was the worst of my addiction so if you can picture i live in newport beach like in this gorgeous place you know my friends are all famous i'm dating one of the chargers football players like i had just shot for fhm magazine on the surface, everything looked great. And I wake up on the floor. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is. I know I need to catch a flight for a shoot. And all I could think of was, I've never wanted to die more. Mm. Like here I am in a magazine. I never hated myself more. I never thought I was more ugly. Like here I am. I mean, to some people that might seem like a glamorous life. I never felt more shame and just discarded. I can't even explain it. And I knew that I was in trouble. And so I called my mom and I said, I need to go to rehab. And so I did. And I went to one of those like really bougie, you know, hundred grand mm. rehabs where it's like on the beach, but basically it's just AA, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be free, but they charge you just like an astronomical amount of money. But I'm thankful for it because it gave me, you know, 90 days of just a pause. I got out of the industry. Um, you know, I didn't kill myself. Like there was a lot of good that happened, but I certainly didn't heal. I mean, it, I stopped drinking, but it was like putting a bandaid on a compound fracture. Mm -hmm. And the worst part of it was that was, um, I did some therapy there and that's where a male therapist helped me uncover the molestation when I was four, my parents were brought in. It turns out that, that somebody had actually reported this guy and I didn't tell. Hmm. So like everybody knew that this guy was molesting people and the police were involved. And I kept that secret. Like I didn't tell anybody. 
And I didn't want him to get in trouble. I didn't want him to be mad at me. Like all these things that I think women still today deal with all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't want to be looked at as dirty. They don't want to be the problem. They don't want to be attacked. Like all that shit's real. And even as a four-year-old, I was like, "Mm -mm, I'm not saying nothing. So what's crazy is it like comes out now that, that this was a thing. Um, but then what was painful, I, I get back, I move. I knew if I stayed in LA, I wouldn't get out of the industry. The money was just too good at that time. The money is terrible now. Mm-hmm. Like to, I remember I was shooting this show who wants to date a playboy model. And I looked at the two girls and I'm like, how much are you guys getting paid? And they were like, oh, we're not, we're doing this for free. I'm like, what? <laughs> so then all of a sudden everybody just wanted to, you know, to say they were on Playboy TV. And so where we used to make a lot of money, then all of a sudden you didn't. Yep. And um, anyway, I got out of the industry at a very good time. So now I'm back in Reno. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. My whole dream had always been to be a broadcast journalist in college. That was my major. I had actually co-hosted a show on local NBC. I still had contacts in the industry. So I remember I called somebody was a contact with Tony Kowalski. Um, It was Denver, I think, ABC. And they looked me up and within two seconds said, you'll never work in this industry again. Don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. If somebody can look you up and see you naked and hustler, you mm-hmm. cannot be reporting on the news. And mm-hmm. I was like, all right, fair enough. Mm-hmm. That actually makes a lot of sense. So I knew I burned myself there and I was always interested in psychology. Obviously, like we <laughs> We teach what we need to know and we learn, you know, what we're trying to heal. And so I was like, well, I'll go to school to be a therapist. So I finally finished my one stupid undergrad class. I go to graduate school and I'm maintaining okay. The male therapist that had uncovered like all this sexual trauma sends me an email two years to the day. So the way licensure works is you know, you can't like sleep with your clients, Yep. but the way the marriage and family therapy license works is, is you can, as long as you wait two, two years, wow. so two years to the day, this guy that I trusted more than anything writes me an email and says, you need to come see me. Cause I would stay in contact with him. Mm-hmm. I would go see him in Newport beach. And, um, yeah, he was like a father figure to me. I loved him. And he said something along the lines of, I'm going to show you you know, who, how a real man is or just some dumb shit like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not blaming him because I was probably on the verge of relapsing anyway, but that was it. It was like game on. Mm -hmm. And I was drinking (laughs) so much. And here I am simultaneously in graduate school to be a counselor for addiction. Mm. So it was like, I had already committed. I was halfway through my program. I mean, talk about like the worst feeling ever of just being this hypocrite. I swear I talk about shame a lot. What was interesting and the only thing that anchored me to myself through that time was I knew I had a desire to help people. Mm-hmm. I knew it. I, I truly cared. And I thought, you know what? You're better than me, honestly. Like I get this on levels that people will never understand. And I wasn't drinking and going to work or doing anything like that. But for me, I would hit a point within, it was like a pain intolerance and I had to numb. So I would disassociate or I would drink. And that it was like one of the two would inevitably happen. So I understood it. I knew I was being a hypocrite. I knew I had no business going into the field. At that point, I was just a student, thank God. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, so much. I can pause. I feel like I'm just like, I was going to say, I was going to say, there's there's a lot here. I was just letting you roll with it. I was like, this is just, I'm just sat here just taking some notes. Um, So before we we go forward, I just quickly take it back a little bit. Um, when you got into Playboy, what kind of headspace were you in? Because obviously you kind of mentioned before you kind of relapsed and kind of like wanted to end things, like you had such a bad image with your body and yourself. Is that something that you had going into that industry? Or is that something that the industry caused for you, do you think? Or was it a bit of both? Um, that's a great question. For me, it didn't cause it, but it definitely exasperated it. And I mean, we're looking now that children, young girls that are eight years old, 
like 90% of it on a diet. It's gross the way women are seen and objectified and told to shrink and really um, valued for their looks and their youth. And they learn that at a very early age. And what was crazy for me about the modeling agency, because my first job ever actually when I was 16 was, which is also fucking weird. It was modeling wedding dresses, you know what I mean? So I, here I am like, I'm modeling wedding dresses and they're telling me you're too skinny for these dresses, right? And then I went into the fitness industry and it was like, oh, you're not muscular enough. And then I went into Playboy and they're like, we need to get your tits done. And then, you know, I was like constantly being told you're too big, you're too small, you're too, you know, and then Playboy was like, whoa, now you're more a hustler. Whoa, this, you know, so... It was awful. Um, and then, you know, the internet, thank God I didn't grow up with social media. I am so thankful. That kind of hit like when I was exiting LA and that lifestyle. But, you know, there was all these forums and stuff where people would be making comments about your body. And the reality is, you know, there's something for everyone, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Like, some people like blonde, some people like thick, some people like some people, whatever. We're attracted to whatever we're attracted to. I'm sure Freud has like some <laughs> weird dialogue that explains it, but everybody can be beautiful, right? But it was just like whatever director you were in front of in that time. And so, you know, for me, everybody was just like doing so many drugs. We were just skinny. Yeah, you know, um, we didn't eat. Do, do, do you think there's a lot of again without stereotyping and without saying like speaking for the people? But do you feel like a lot of the girls you were there modeling with were in a very similar position as you, in the sense of like uh, addicted in some way, shape, or form to some sort of substance, and again just trying to find something external for themselves? Does that makes sense. Absolutely, like deeply insecure, uh, looking for a connection. I mean, when I say daddy issues, you know, really, I mean it. Um, learning very early on that we can use our sexuality for attention and replacing that with love. Some of it was just straight up money. I mean, for me, I was at that point, I was such a drug addict to alcoholic. Like I wasn't going to get an office job. Are you kidding me? I had to have a car come pick me up to get me to the studio because I couldn't even drive. Mm. So not only was it allowed, it was encouraged, you know? Yep. Um, I don't know how it is now, but yeah, we were doing drugs on set. What I will say though, is I do think there's a misconception. I will say from my perspective, now granted, this is early 2000s and I was only in that industry for like a year. So I'm not a good source on it, but I am really good friends with a lot of famous porn stars and they all say the same thing. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of abuse, early childhood abuse, mostly sexual, and then they were using when they were shooting. That's mm -hmm. the bottom line. Now I'll also tell you, I am... Um, I had a dear friend that taught a human sexuality class at the University of Nevada. And so she would take her class out to the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. So that's a legal brothel, uh, Dennis Hoff's brothel. And it was fascinating because we I always went with her um, when I could because you would talk to the women and you would get to really hear their stories. And they actually drug tested the women there. Um, they did drink a lot. And I know some of them did drugs and hit it. But, you know, sex is so different for a lot of people. Like a lot of women, it's it's like a handshake. It's an exchange. Like mm -hmm. I could go and I could count money at a bank or I can go have sex with this person. They don't have the oxytocin release. They're not ashamed about it. I think that that is an exceptionally small amount of people, but they do exist. So I do mm -hmm. want to say that. Yep, yep. My experiences, no. Anybody that's been in the industry, it's caused major, 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 major problems. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me about porn is we always talk about the damage to the women. But I, having now been with multiple men with really extreme porn addictions, like my ex-husband was addicted to porn for 20 years. I'm talking hours a day. Person didn't know that until it was way too late. But the insecurity that that causes men is like mm -hmm. astronomical. 
because you have to remember the porn industry when it started. I mean, we're looking at like Ron Jeremy, right? Yep, like yep. that was the dude who could show up and perform it that way. And then Viagra hit the market. And then all of a sudden it was like, yeah, these, you know, men's health fitness models could go and do that. And it, you, I mean, it's just, the other thing people don't realize is it's just scripted. You know, I don't want to say that nobody's ever actually climaxed like a woman on set, but let me just tell you, I don't know anybody that has. Mm -hmm. And back then you used to shoot stills for box covers. And so everything's so scripted. I was I, like, I, okay, I, you're going to do this. I, th I think that's such a thing that people don't realize uh, is the damage that it causes. Like I said, to, to men, to young women now as well, because you've got men that think that is reality that think that's how yeah. women want to be treated. And again, I'm speaking, again, I, I shared my story a little bit, but again, I, I know all too well, like the, the the damage that it took kind of did to me, but I was very well aware of this. I wouldn't say I was addicted, but I was aware that I was watching it every single night and I was aware of kind of yeah. what I was doing. So I was very, very aware of what I was doing, but you then get women that then also think that they have to live up to what they are seeing. And if they're not doing that, right. then they're not good enough. So it not only causes issues for the males, it causes issues for the women, and it then also causes issues for the relationship themselves because it's like well why aren't we doing this like that when actually again right. i feel like in a relationship it's meant to be two parties communicating again and then just expressing themselves like that that's what it is an exchange of sexual energy that's what it is but what you're seeing in porn as you said is scripted actors or actresses getting paid to perform and it's two completely yes. different things and people get really confused by this and it's something i now uh, like i said uh, like too much, I, I watch porn maybe maybe once every two or three months it's just not a thing for me i don't need to watch it anymore whereas before it was a need and i didn't realize the effect it was actually having on my brain and my dopamine right. so again i, I want to get an actual uh, expert to talk about this as a guy i've got in mind to really talk about the effects of porn because it's just bizarre but the fact of you know people in this industry you can speak to it from again personal experience on their behalf i think it's just bizarre and more people should be talking about it yeah it's you know <laughs> What's interesting about it is the dopamine, of course, but mm. what people forget is dopamine is the anticipation motivation chemical. It's not the satiation chemical. So serotonin is I'm satisfied. Dopamine is I'm motivated. So all of these things, all these drugs, whether it's porn or, you know, whatever we're talking about, it's the illusion of being satisfied. It's this thing that's going to make me feel better, but it doesn't. And that's the point we all have to remember, you know, it's, it's, and then it's damaging. I mean, most relationships end because of one of two things, finances or porn, like it's destroying people. And you think about a 12 year old boy, you know, before it was like, oh my God, I found my dad's playboy. Can you even imagine the shit you see now, like mm -hmm. rapid fire? And mm -hmm. I, I was very fortunate when I was in the industry, I was always treated with a lot of respect. Like my experience was when I said no, nobody cared. Mm -hmm. Nobody tried to course me, nobody fired me. It was just like, I was treated fine. That is not the case, it sounds like anymore. Um, it's awful. And there's such a stigma for people that have been in the industry. It was interesting, I'm going through a legal nightmare with my ex-husband here in Mexico and he had found all of my my stuff which is crazy right from like 05 um and I only shot a little bit but nonetheless he found everything and I remember we'd been married for about three years when he showed me this USB drive and he's like basically gotcha because you have to remember at this point I'm a professor like I work a lot with young men. I did a lot of work with fraternities. You know, that was my nightmare that any of my students would ever find out. I mean, it, that would have just, it would have ruined the relationship, the respect, everything. So now I've got this person like, look what I found, you know, bullshit. So now we're in this legal thing and he starts threatening me again. You know, like I'm going to tell people and it's so interesting to me because we're talking about shame a little bit before we jumped on and I thought about it and I'm like, I'm really not ashamed of it. I'm not proud of it either. It's really what happened. Like I was 20. I was a drug addict. I couldn't do anything else. There was no other work for me. 
And then I had somebody like, here's $10,000 cash. Like, of course I did it. Mm -hmm. So 23 years ago or whatever, I made a decision that's being thrown in my face. Like I'm going to expose you. So I exposed myself. I put it all over on social media. I showed my Playboy covers. I did it all. I was like, this is what I did 23 years ago. Who cares? Mm -hmm. And it was the most liberating thing. Because you know who cared? Nobody. Mm -hmm. And this person like threatened me with that forever. But is that and interesting? Is, 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 is that interesting? Is that interesting? Because again, in the episode that I did share my story, I basically did part during that. It was like Eminem on 8 Mile, where it's just like, I know everything about myself. It's like, you think you've heard a story about me. It's like, okay, well, I lived it. Yeah. I can tell you the actual truth. If you want to know the actual gossip, I'll, I'll give it you. I'll tell you all the stuff I've done in my past. I can't change that. But actually, yeah. once I've come to the realization of what I've done, it's like, judge me by what I've done since then. And you will see I'm not the same person. If you want to talk about past version of me, that's fine. You can have him because I'm done with him. But this is what I'm doing right now. And look at the difference. But can we just clarify what we're talking about here? Because uh, the quote here, this is from your TED talk, I believe, uh, which again, I'll link in the bio so people can share that out. Um, you say the difference between guilt and shame is that guilt is what I did was bad, whereas shame is I am bad. Because I think a lot of people get those two confused and get them mixed. And basically they're stuck in that shame of, I am a bad person. Can we talk a little bit more on that? Because I think it's such a fascinating concept. You know, this idea, and when I work with my clients, one of the first things we do is tap into the, the core belief. And is it that I am good or is it that I am bad? And, you know, those words are interchangeable. But it is amazing to me how many wonderful, like phenomenal, loving, kind, successful people at their root, genuinely believe they are bad. And this is, you know, this is religion. This is parenting. This is, you know, the ego trying to keep us safe. Like there's a million reasons. I mean, there are people that are actively doing things um, that they should definitely like explore and look at. Right. But this idea that we are a bad inherently bad person is is just entirely untrue and i also like the definition you know of sin which simply means to miss the mark so when i think about shame i think about i am bad i see no value in that um when i think about shame i'm like go do some rape go do some combo go do some ayahuasca get that out of you because that does not serve you having a, a core belief that there's something inherently wrong that you are bad you are always going to collect evidence to prove that that is true mm -hmm. guilt on the other hand is wonderful i'm not a big aa person but i do like the defects of character and the constant assessment of where we're at and if it's like this is who i want to be but this is who i am currently how do i bridge that gap I either lower my standards or I step up, you know, and I think that when we can do that with grace and realize we're all human, you know, like as you admit, like, yeah, I used to watch porn sometimes or, you know, as I'm like, yeah, I uh, sold my body for money, basically, or whatever, you know, like everybody has their stuff mm -hmm. that literally is part of the human experience. But until we can start believing that we truly are light and that we are simply just moving through darkness instead of the other way around, that we are dark trying to find the light. I just think we're screwed. I love the analogy. They said when Michelangelo created the statue of David, you know, at that time, nobody had seen anything so beautiful, this magnificent sculpture. And so they asked him, they said, how did you create something so beautiful? And he said, it was easy. I just chipped away the parts that weren't angel. And to me, that's what we're doing. It's like, what brings me closer to myself, to God, to love, to truth? Does this expand me? Does this make me shrink? It has nothing to do with good or bad. It has to do with love. Like, does this make me more of myself? You know? And those are the questions to start asking because society is going to give you a lot of really weird feedback and you have to be able to determine for yourself what feels most authentic and true how do you figure that out because you're completely right society will tell you a lot of things and again a lot of it you kind of touched on it like 
we've got this identity, this how we see ourselves, but I don't see it as an identity. Most of us have a lie identity, which is all the lies that society's told us about ourselves that we're holding on to. For example, yourself, you, you're not tall enough, your boobs aren't big enough, whatever the hell it was that you were told. And a lot of people, I'm not smart enough. Uh, I'm the right. wrong gender. There's all these things that people are told and it's just a lie. It's a, a lie that we then buy into and then we protect. But so then my question is, how do we get people to become more aware of this? So that we've got to ask ourselves the right question. But in a world with so much noise, how do we go about actually quieting that noise and then actually starting to figure ourselves out and ask ourselves the right questions to see if we are actually moving towards this light, this love, whatever it is we're trying to move towards? This is such a great question. And I think it really is about like stepping out of the matrix and the brainwashing. And just remember that there is billions of dollars every single second pumped into making you hate yourself. So when we can start really looking at what's true for me, what do I believe? You know, here's a perfect example. This is a Tony Robbins thing that I love and I use with my clients all the time, but it's the blueprint. So if your blueprint says I must be, um, as a woman, a size six, um, make X amount of money, um, and look like X, Y, Z, to be happy, then I can either hire a trainer, dye my ass off, dye my hair, um, hustle at work. Like I can do everything to try to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Or I could just be happy. It's like the illusion is all these things need to happen, but the happiness is there. We're the ones making it unattainable through the process of needing to perform. Mm -hmm. And it's like our brains are not wired for happiness. Our brains are wired for survival. So, and then our little ego gets involved and it's like, let's create all these stories that I need a Lamborghini and be a pro football player, look like this or blah, 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 you know, whatever to be special or loved or important, or you could just love yourself and feel special and be important by being of service in the world. Like mm -hmm. it's all lies and stories, you know, I mean, I'm a perfect example. It's like, I worked out because I love it and I love beauty. It's like, it's one of my things um, that lots of people <laughs> have their thing. Like I like getting my nails done. I like to stay in shape. I love style. I love fashion. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna get my hair done. I'm going to do all the bougie shit. You know what I mean? Cause I just enjoy it. It's not because I don't think I'm lovable without it. It's because I think it's fun. So I think that's the other part too is how do you play with that? You know, like if I believed, oh my God, I have to look like this forever for somebody to love me, I'd be a mess mm -hmm. because I'm not going to. Like, you know, like I'm 41 years old, you know? I don't know how much longer I'm gonna look like this. Like I'm always gonna take care of myself, but if I believe that my beauty and my sexuality or the way I look is what makes me lovable, I am screwed. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be in constant fear of lo losing that. But if I go, you know what? This is fun. Like I love trying on, you know, one day my hair is purple and one day I'm this and one day and it's fun and I'm playing with it. Now all of a sudden it's fun mm -hmm. because it's not a life or death situation anymore. It's I get to experiment with it. And that is the great cosmic joke. Mm -hmm. You know, we, it's like, what is our purpose? Why are we here? I'll tell you a story. First time I ever did five MEO strongest psychedelic on the planet. It's crazy, crazy experience. We're all sitting in a circle. After you have that experience and you've really been in the consciousness soup of one, of love, of sound, of color, and you you get it, you know what's next. You're kind of like, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> For real, what is the point? And it was so beautiful because the facilitator said, he goes, that God's only problem is that God is everything. Like God is everything. So God needed to know itself. So God had to separate fractally into, you know, how many billion of us to know itself. Mm -hmm. And like, what a gift that we get to jump in the ocean. What a gift that we get to eat sushi, you know? And also it's like, what comes with that is heartbreak. I mean, I just, again, I went through, <laughs> I went through like the worst divorce ever a year ago in five days ago now just went through a breakup that made that seem like child's play 
So it's like with it comes the heartache, right? And what do we do? We just learn how to move our pain. I sat and I sat with the best people I know. I felt it. I move it. I feel it. You know, for me, I write a lot. I speak my truth. Like I, I know how to move my pain through me. And that to me is like, it's part of it. It's what makes it all worth it. Because mm -hmm. just think of a video game. Like if you always just passed every level, it wouldn't be any fun. If there was no villain, nothing to jump over. Like the whole point of life is pleasure and obstacles, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, we only know how resilient we are. We only learn to trust ourselves, how resilient we are when we're tested. So it's like in times of being tested, yeah, who are you? That's where you get to know it. Like I was a martial artist, had a martial arts school. You can throw on boxing gloves and hip pads, right? That's step one. You can throw on boxing gloves and helmets and you can spar nice and light, just going real easy. That's step two. You can climb in a ring where somebody really wants to rip your head off. <laughs> that is a totally different experience. You are never going to know how you're going to respond until you are actually in a ring, somebody trying to kill you, all that adrenaline. Like there's no way to prepare for that. And that's life. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're going to do until you're in it. And so for me, it's like so important to fill the cup when you're not in those painful places and then be aware. Do you freeze? Do you, do you fight? Do you flee? Like, you know, if your thing's addiction or numbing out or whatever, it's like, have that awareness because it's coming. Like it is going to come again and again. That is the only truth. I was say about the video games as well, because that's something I talk about a lot is that basically you just go through, I use it like Mario. So you go through Mario and then you go to the little flagpole, <laughs> you go to the next level. And basically you learn the skills from the level before to help you beat the boss or whatever is on that next level. Like each time it gets harder and harder. So you mentioned about the divorce. You learn stuff from that, which I meant this breakup we said was a lot worse, but you learn the skills from the level before that helped you now deal with this. So each time, like life just throws at you kind of, again, in, in a weird way. Like I always believe that life happens for us, not to us. But in order for it to happen for you, it has to happen to you first. Like you have to go through it in order for you to, 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 to harness the lessons from it. But something here is another quote of you as well uh, from yourself. I think, again, it's another podcast I heard one. We talk about um, a lot of people have a fear of getting better. Can we sort of talk about that? Because I think you're right with this, where people are like they're holding on to this narrative, this identity, whatever it is. But can we talk about this this fear of actually getting better? Because again, I think people do this when it comes to fat loss. They've got a fear of losing the weight. Uh, they've got a fear of um, stopping drinking alcohol or the drugs, the sex, whatever it is. They've got this fear of this vice, this thing. Like, why do we think that is? Why are people afraid of getting better? That's a great question. Um, I think you know, the first thing to always assess is what is the payoff to staying sick? Like once you can identify that a lot can be revealed. Like if I'm drinking all the time, what's the payoff? Well, I get to numb out. Well, I can hate myself and like create distance between me and everyone else. Oh, I have an excuse to be a lazy piece of shit because I'm an alcoholic, uh, whatever. Right. Um, a more gentle one. I worked with a woman who was morbidly obese, and she was really trying, like, God bless her. She was trying to lose the weight. Turned out she had been molested by her father. And that was her protection, you know? So the payoff to her weight was that men wouldn't find her attractive. And it literally served as this barrier between her heart and anyone else. So there's a lot of reasons why we don't want to get better. Sometimes we're afraid to get better because we're afraid of things going well. You know, mm -hmm. that can be so unnatural for people. Um, you know, we are homeostasis is, is every organism. We like things the same. So even if we're in chaos and dysfunction, we'd rather stay in it than try to navigate something we don't know. But I really, I return a lot to, I'm afraid to get better because then I might lose it. You know, at least, <laughs> at least I'm down here and I, I don't know, but it's, it's such an individual question. And then too, there's an identity piece a lot of times. And, you know, you can 
pretty much if you work with people for any length of time, you know, it's that's their way to be significant. And those are the people I don't work with. And I say that with love and compassion. I really, um, but I'm not a therapist. I'm a coach. So it's like, what are we doing? What's the action plan? We're moving. Those -hmm. people need therapy. Somebody that's going to be like, well, how does that feel? And hold their hand. It'd be nice. And I'm, I, I just don't do that. It's not my style. Mm -hmm. So if the identity is to be sick, the identity is poor me. The identity is people will take care of me. I also think too, it's like a lot of times, you know, the victim and the person that blames everybody, it also negates personal responsibility. Because when I can always point the finger, then I never have to own my shit. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can take like, even what just happened with my relationship, right? Like I can say, I set a boundary, you broke it over and over and over again, right? Bad, 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 poor me. The reality is I set a boundary, he freaking broke it over and over and over again. What the fuck was I thinking? You know what I mean? Like that's on me. I should have immediately, you know what I mean? If not sooner, gotten out of that so it's like there is victim blaming and there is a lot of the spiritual bypassing the victim blaming the i hate that shit it's like it's a both ends you know what i mean so it's really important though that we don't get stuck in our sad story like i could say oh my god i always pick the wrong people oh my god i always pick men that do X, Y, and Z. Well, that's a terrible story. And again, the universe always says yes. So as I tell the story that that always happens to me, that will continue to always happen to me. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather tell the story. All right. I learned. I, I did. I learned. I, I see my blind spots. I worked through some of the trauma. Um, it became very clear why I stayed The best piece of advice, which I will share with your listeners without disclosing too much personal information, because I think it's brilliant, is when somebody violates your boundaries once, you don't necessarily need to cut them off. But why would you not proceed with caution? Be more diligent. Maybe take a step back. Assess. You know, I was like, no, let's form companies together. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I'll move in. Like, you know what I mean? There's there's got to be accountability. I think when it comes to boundary setting, that's a big thing that people uh, sort of struggle with. And there's something that um, I heard, I can't remember if it was on Instagram or something like that, but basically the person was saying that when it comes to boundaries, it's taking the action on the boundary. Because if you're just setting a boundary with your words, that's not a boundary. A boundary is an action. So you set it with words. And again, people can, again, whatever your rule is, like I normally have like a, a one strike, two strike rule. Then after whatever you've said, if you do this again, then this is it whatever the consequence is, you have to then back up your words with action. Otherwise it's not a boundary. It's just a word that you've said. A boundary has to have action. Like a boundary is like a, a doing thing, which is something I was, because again, the way I taught boundaries to my clients was you set the boundary, you defend it. But actually this person said, no, you have to actually follow up your words. So if you say to a child, if you do that again, I'm gonna take your iPad off you. You have to then follow it up if they do it again with the action. Otherwise that's not a boundary that's been set. And I was like, that's a really right. interesting concept that I hadn't really tweaked. It's about actually taking that action. And I was like, that's really, really interesting. Um, so one thing that's on your um, Instagram bio, which says, I will help you break free from the shit that's holding you back. So the next question is, what would you say is one of the most common things for the people you work with that's actually holding them back? Because people are listening to this right now and they are stuck and they are in their own way. But what's the common things that you sort of see with clients and how do you help them overcome that? I mean, with me personally, a lot of it is alcohol. Um, there's a point where, I mean, drink socially, like I don't think alcohol is bad for everybody, obviously, but a lot of the people that I work with, they have hit that point of diminishing returns where it is causing problems. They're doing things they're embarrassed of. They're hungover. They're not showing up for their kids. They're, you know, so that's one thing. Another big thing that I think holds people back is this quote. And I think Marion Williamson said it, but I actually think it was more like Gandhi or somebody or Martin Luther King before her. But it's like what we're really terrified of is our greatness, mm-hmm. you know? And so playing small is, it's safe. It's easy. Um, I mean, sometimes it's just straight up laziness for me to really step into my greatness. That requires a lot of effort. That requires a lot of, of the energy. I think, Sometimes we're afraid 
I work with some pretty, like pretty high up there clients. They are afraid if they level up just even a little bit more, they're going to be unrelatable. They're going to be in that, you know, 1% where they're going to lose family, friends, you know, people will not, um, relate to them. So I think sometimes it's a loss of connection. I see it with couples a lot. Mm. One of them doesn't want to get better because they know they'll leave the other behind. And it's like, what a great opportunity that person's going to rise or yeah, leave mine, you know, and that sounds cold and harsh, but it's true. I've seen it time and time and time again. You know, it's like, for me, at least I want to be chosen. I don't want somebody to stay with me out of obligation. I don't want somebody to stay with me because you know, they, they feel like they need to like hold my hand and take care of me. Like I want somebody that chooses me. And I, I think that that is a respect thing for everybody. So it's like, Hey, this is where I'm going. If you want to come cool. And if you don't, let's see if it works because we don't all need to be on the same level, but that one actually, I believe causes a lot of people to hold themselves back because they are afraid they will lose the connections that they have. Mm, that's a really interesting one i've had it before again when i was personal training that you've got um a guy that's maybe really skinny and their partner's got a lot of weight to lose their opinion not mine and what ended up happening is when the woman starts to lose 34 to 50 pounds the guy starts to get insecure because he's realizing actually his partner might leave him and then it's actually yeah. the male that stops the, the, the woman in this case actually carrying on because you're calling my partner and um, in my head i'm like obviously you can't search them but it's like that's basically what's happening like so you're like so you're just going to go gain all that weight back on just to yeah. make your partner happy uh, and again it happens time and time again it's like that, that tall poppy syndrome isn't it like where people sort of stand out from the crowd or crabs in the bucket energy whichever one you want to call it where actually when you try and better yourself like when you do stop drinking but all your friends still drink and actually you stick with your guns you stay with your boundaries you're highlighting to everyone else that their yeah. lacks their limitations their issues and you're highlighting to them maybe you've got a problem with alcohol or maybe you need to up your game or maybe you need to get out of that dead-end job or get out of that relationship whatever it is and people try and pull you down to their level and keep you there because it's their insecurities that they're projecting onto you and when people aren't aware of this they then just throw away their dreams their goals their aspirations just to kind of settle which then later on down the line causes issues because you're just stuck there with a life that you never really wanted in the first place yeah Sad times. Like I said, I'm glad, I'm glad you touched on that because it's a big thing. So it's a real big thing. Um, so final question here that I ask all my guests and I'm really, because again, you can either summarize stuff you've said or you can, um, again, go off on a, a tangent with this. Uh, what advice would you give to someone right now that's listening to this that does feel stuck and out of control with their life? Seek the others who have gone before you. You know what I mean? Like find people who have done it going along with what we were just talking about, what happens a lot is, you know, you want to be the big fish in a small pond and you never up level. When you're really wanting to make a shift, make a change, go find the people that are crushing it, you know, because there's an activation that happens. And in my experience, like when I find teachers, when I find mentors, when I meet women that I'm like, holy shit, something special about you. And it's like, hey, I want to learn from you. People love that. You know what I mean? Or pay them or whatever. You know what I mean? But it's like, find the people that have done it. Find the people that are a level above. Don't date down. You know, if you really want to make a shift and change, then start being with the people who make shifts and change. Like, because mm -hmm. the conversation hits different. They're not sitting, complaining, gossiping, talking shit, blah, blah. You know, they're, they are out there building. They're figuring things out. I'll tell you, my, one of my favorite stories ever. There's a guy who lives in Cabo. His name is Madu. He runs a gym, Motivated. This dude left Africa went to New York to live with an aunt. <laughs> the aunt said, oh, never mind, you can't. He had nowhere to go. Had a cousin in like Kansas. So this like six foot nine black dude gets on a bus to Kansas with a loaf of bread and like 18 cents. He starts working at a Wendy's because he's here illegally, doesn't speak the language. Finally, somebody's like, you can wash dishes. Mm -hmm. Takes out money, learns English. Then he goes and becomes a personal trainer. Then he keeps 
moving up the ladder. Then he starts modeling. Now he's a professional model. Now he's a celebrity trainer in LA. You know what I mean? Now somebody moved him to Cabo to open gyms. Like the guy is just crushing it. But the thing that's most fascinating about him to me, and this is like, these are the people I'm saying, go find. He goes, look, you can take everything from me. Take my gym, all my money, take it all. Drop me in the middle of nowhere. Drop me in the middle of Japan where I don't speak the language. I know nobody. He goes, come back in two years and see what I built. Mm. Like, those are my friends. You know what I mean? Like, that's who I want to hang out with. People Not can't the person. People, people, people can't take that from you. Like, when, once you've built those skills and you've got that about yourself, people can take... Yeah. Well, people get so fixated on things. But it's like, in order to actually hold on to those things, you have to become whatever you want to have in life. You have to become the person to have those things. If you skip steps, if you lose it all, you can't get it back again. But the, the guy mentioned that he had to become someone to get all that stuff. So when you take the stuff away, he's still that person. He's still all that resilience he's built up, all that stuff, like the skills that he's built. And this is what I'm saying the first investment people need to make is in themselves. People talk about, oh, what, that people talk about investing nowadays. Okay, first investment should be on yourself. Because the investment right. on yourself, the, the interest of the compound interest of investing in yourself, and no one can take it from you. The skills that you develop, that your ability to communicate, make friends, relationships, whatever it is, no one can take that away from you. They can take your money, they can take your relationships, but they can't take away the skills that you actually have. So people I feel need to have more time, energy, and effort invested in themselves. And again, seeking out people who have done it. What books have you read? What courses have you done? Do you have any contacts for me? And more than likely, people want to help you because people want to help people win. And they also want to be the person that helps the person win as well. Like I do loads of stuff for free for help to help people out. Like I give loads of advice. Yes. Like, it, it feels good to help people. So it's like, just always pay it forward. I think it's such a powerful thing. Yes. So where can people find out more information about you? This has been a really interesting con con conversation. I've really, really enjoyed this. But where can people, if you want to connect with you, if you want to reach out, where's the best place for people to reach you? Well, thank you so much for asking. Recoveryremix.com is going to be relaunched just solo by me later. So right now you can find me at joeweatherford.com. But really, um, Joe Weatherford on Instagram and Facebook, I'm super active there. And just DM me, message me. Um, yeah, happy to answer any questions, share any resources. Amazing. Yeah, honestly, wow, fantastic. Fun. No, amazing. Joe, honestly, thank you very much for your time today.